Walkers. Welcome to episode two of Black Veil Brides, the Phantom Cast, presented by Pop Curse. I'm your host, Ryan J. Downey. This is the inside story of The Phantom Tomorrow, the new album from Black Veil Brides, as told by all five band members and several folks behind the scenes who help make things happen. Phantom Tomorrow excels as both a series of standalone songs and a cohesive conceptual album. Recorded in Los Angeles, The Phantom Tomorrow marks the first collaboration between Black Veil Brides and producer Eric Ron, whose credits include albums by Dance Gavin Dance, Multi-Platinum Rockers Bush, and Godsmack, whose 2018 album with Eric was certified gold in September 2021 and produced two gold singles. Even broken away from the sprawling and immersive story, which we will get into in this pod documentary series, the songs stand on their own with equal might. Tracks like Torch, The Wicked One, Crimson Skies, and Kill the Hero are mighty new entries to the Black Veil Brides canon. Each song released by the band in the decade plus since their first full-length album serves as an empowering anthem, whether wrestling with existential angst, looking inward at heartbreak and despair, or challenging the status quo via post-apocalyptic allegory. The lyrics, symbols, and imagery associated with Black Veil Brides adorn the bodies of a diverse legion in tattoos and t-shirts. Going back to the very first record, 2010's We Stitch These Wounds. Set the World on Fire, their major label debut, became the band's first top 20 album in 2011. Sprawling hard rock opera, Wretched and Divine, The Story of the Wild Ones, released in 2013, hit the top 10, as did the stripped-down and straightforward follow-up, simply titled Black Veil Brides, in 2014. The band's fifth album, 2018's Veil, topped Billboard's hard rock chart, with significant chart success in Europe and Australia. The roar of Black Veil Bride's unshakable devotees is too loud to ignore, even for the rock press. Rock music tastemakers like Kerrang! and Rock Sound have put Black Veil Brides on their covers multiple times. Revolver added Andy Biersack to their list of 100 greatest living rock stars, alongside Axl Rose, Ozzy Osbourne, and Gene Simmons. No other artist has graced the cover of Alternative Press more times than Andy and Black Veil Brides. In the magazine's nearly 40 years of publication history, only Trent Reznor comes close. Before collaborating with Eric Ron on The Phantom Tomorrow, Black Veil Brides worked with several other A-list producers, including Josh Abraham, whose credits include Linkin Park, Velvet Revolver, and Weezer, John Feldman, who's worked with Panic at the Disco, Blink-182, and Five Seconds of Summer, and Bob Rock, whose credits include Metallica, The Cult, and Motley Crue. Guitarist Jake Pitts produced the Night EP and the anniversary redo of their debut, Restitch These Wounds. Each of these recording experiences over the years came with its challenges and rewards, and all of that experience was put to use on The Phantom Tomorrow. Here's the band's longtime manager, Ozzy Osbourne bassist Blasco, on the evolution of Black Veil Brides from a production perspective. There's sometimes a perspective that major labels aren't good for bands and there's probably some truth to that in the story of this band though the producers have really helped craft these bands sound and these bands records and without a major label budget we could not have afforded to work with these guys 
we made the first record for 10,000 and it sounds like we made the record for $10,000, but it's what we had. It's what we were able to work with. And, and we figured out a way to, to make it work. And it still debuted as a top 40 Billboard 200 album. And it still kind of defined their future, sort of regardless, right? I mean, dude, how many bands go back and hate the sounds of their early records or whatever? Because they're, because they're comparing it to the fidelity that they've come to like from other producers and bands and, and whatever, but they're not putting themselves in the perspective of the fan. You know, what an honest, lo-fi, stretching the dollar sound is. Like, dude, like what if Black Sabbath had the budget to go back in? And I mean, dude, there's like missing parts and like, like drumstick, like there's like fuck ups, like in, Black Flag albums and Black Sabbath albums and, and and but it's honest and it's real and even Misfits records right like it's honest and it's real like I mean like I remember Glenn always saying like oh those Misfits records sound like shit and I go but that's the wrong perspective in my opinion because the people that are listening to it the people that are buying your t-shirts don't think it sounds like shit but at what point are you able to have a 10-year career at what point are you able to make a Pink Floyd level concept record with voiceovers and all these cast of characters and, 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 and a movie and right. Like none of wretched and divine would have happened without the budget that the major label afforded us to have. So I do think I have to give some credit to the people being able to work with our crazy ideas I'm like, hey, can we just take the video budget and make a movie? And they're like, I don't know. Can you? And I was like, <laughs> well, I go, we just spent X amount of dollars on this one video. Can I just take that budget and give you eight videos in the form of a movie? And they were like, I don't, I, I guess. And, 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 we, and we did. And it was a, a monumental turning point in the band's career. If the band was still on standby records at that point in their career, we couldn't have even humored the idea of doing anything like that. And who knows where that would have you know, got, gotten us, right? I have to give credit to them and the band, right? Because the band was deserving of the budgets that we were getting, right? We, we, we signed that deal as soon as that, that first album came out and made the splash that it did. But we were able to then work with some guys that brought a lot to the table. The pushed aside, marginalized, and misunderstood have a kindred spirit in Andy, the driving force and voice of the band. Andy crafted a platform and an image with the same DIY spirit that drove Generation X, The Misfits, and Kiss in their early days. He reached out from beyond the confines of his hometown of Cincinnati, Ohio, at the dawn of social media, and moved to Hollywood when he turned 18. Beersack has now made six albums with Black Veil Brides, two solo albums as Andy Black, hosted the Alternative Press Music Awards, created the Ghost of Ohio graphic novel, and collaborated on various songs with Patrick Stump of Fall Out Boy, My Chemical Romance's Gerard Way, and Matt Skiba from Alkaline Trio and Blink-182, among others. Here, Andy talks about his approach to working with producers in the studio. Yeah, the best workflow for me is when I'm able to just come up with what I want to say, and I'm kind of not, I don't want to say obstructed, but when, when I'm allowed to just say what I want to say in a song and the producer isn't heavily trying to direct what is being said. Because also when it comes to writing, 
I'm sharing what I'm writing with the band and explaining it. So I'm already used to saying, here's why this is here. And does everybody like this? And because writing a record is a collaborative effort, you know, nobody exists in a vacuum. You have to be able to explain your work and, and say, this is why you've done what you've done. But my favorite situations are always ones where, you know, the song is built with everybody in the room. And then I can kind of go off and say what I want to say in the song and then come back and go, this is what this is. And there isn't a lot of, you know, well, I, I think you need to find a word that rhymes better there or that kind of thing. Because for me, if I'm not able to say what I want to say, then it seems like a, a pointless effort, you know, to be able to, to write a song from a lyrical perspective, because that is my position. And the thing that I am the most interested in or that I excel the most in is the writing part from a, from a words perspective. For me to be able to do that unencumbered by, is this good enough for a single or are the words that you're writing? Because also the other, the reality is over the years, I have written enough that I also understand the distinction between what I might say on a five minute heavy album track, I can get a little bit more in the weeds. Whereas a song that maybe is a three and a half minute, you know, kind of raise your fist in the air rocker, I need to be more concise and the terminology needs to feel more broad in, in senses that you can understand what I'm trying to say quickly. But I never want to write a song where I'm trying to appeal to something that means nothing to me. And there has been instances throughout our career where we've been caught up in that. And there's songs that many fans really like that I sometimes laugh and go, I have no idea what this is about. And my objective from this point in my career and moving forward is to never have a song that to me doesn't mean anything. Whether that's a really defined meaning or if it's a, a more broad meaning, at least I know what the derivation of it is from a lyrical perspective. As far as learning, you know, I've learned so much about melody and songwriting and how a song comes together, what's going to work. And when I say what's going to work, I don't mean from a this is going to be hugely successful, but more from a this is going to sound the way we want it to perspective. Jinx and Jake Pitts also fought to make their dreams come true in Hollywood, battling through a series of false starts and empty promises. The unique chemistry between them is palpable. Together, they forge a guitar sound worthy of their peers and idols, from Metallica to Avenged Sevenfold. Jinx is also a film composer and a classically trained violinist. Jake is one half of the DJ duo Dr. Cool and Babe, whose credits include the remix of the Papa Roach song Elevate. In addition to the plethora of songwriting and shredding in Blackfell Brides, both guitarists have helped develop and mentor younger artists over the years as well. Here's Jinx looking back on their first collaboration with Feldman, Wretched and Divine. Going back to the first time we worked with Feldman, we did Wretched and Divine. When we started working with him, me and Jake didn't really see eye to eye. We, you know, we were so used to how we worked before. It was just the two of us writing mm -hmm. all the music. And then Andy would come in and, and write a vocal melody and, and lyrics and or whatever. And he'd sing it. And that was it. That was how we wrote. We didn't really work with anybody outside the band or even the three of us. And then here John Feldman comes in and he's just like, this is going to be your song. He's like pounding chords on the piano and just singing this da 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 over the top. And we're just like, what is this? Does this guy even know what our band? Yeah. But it, anyway, long story short, we yeah. came out with something brilliant. And, you know, we're so lucky to have worked with John Feldman on two records, but and learned a lot. So, so where we started with Wretched and Divine and where it started, where we'd be working in three different studios, you know, by and large, that's how we are able to accomplish so much in such a short period mm. of time doing that yeah. record. Actually, you know, funny enough is just because we're butting heads and we discovered Actually, uh, somebody we worked with previously introduced us to this thing called a Kemper profiling amp, where you can basically uh, model or, or copy the sound of a guitar amp 
and its signal chain through the board and everything like the, the tone you can copy the tone that you're getting in the studio into this little magic box and you can take it with you wherever you go and it sounds exactly the same as if you're tracking in the studio with all the gear it's it's miraculous so we discovered that and we're like well we don't necessarily need to track guitars in the studio we got this magic box we can just take this home and do the guitars at home and we don't even have to be here and you know, but but it, it turned into a very positive thing that way and we weren't disconnected it actually worked out so well where john and andy could keep writing and working and cc could track drums and then john will send something over a file to jake hey can you do guitars on this and jake would be in the comfort of his own home his own studio be able to like really think it out and sometimes i'd join him there with guitars but other times because that that record ended up being so string heavy i was doing all the strings at my place so i had hmm. a setup where yeah and i had a i just moved into a new house at that time where i had a room that was perfect acoustics and, and a mic setup everything it was just right to record strings so i did all of that stuff for my house so we were like working you know multitasking and that's where that all started you know, Feldman has a very specific style. He brings a lot of unique co-writers to the table. And that was a unique way to work. And I don't think Wretched and Divine could have come out any other way if it wasn't Andy taking control of the situation, Feldman working with him, Feldman bringing in a bunch of his outside people and working together to have those types of collaborations with other artists they, those, those guys brought to the table and it, it was a defining moment in the band's career and then you know fast forward to someone like Bob Rock coming in that was also another sort of monumental moment in that he, he wasn't necessarily a relevant guy he was still kind of maybe recovering from saint anger at, at that point and I don't know that someone of a Black Veil Bride caliber would have even considered him, I think in a lot of ways because of that, or because it's like, I wanna work with the, a Joey Sturgis or someone that was maybe sort of young and up and coming and you know relevant and stuff. And we're like, how about the guy that made the black record? Yeah. <laughs> you know, How about the guy that made Dr. Feelgood? Like, what's that guy doing? And that was a great experience. We learned a lot because he had a completely different style, but he brought so much to the table. And he brought so much to the table in terms of tell us about making those records, right? Because those are like the black record is probably one of the single most important records of the genre. To be able to peel back the curtain on that record is a tremendous opportunity. And, and, to, and to hear those stories and to, to see, to kind of maybe learn a little bit about that process, even though it may be a different process from a, from a different time. That doesn't mean that I don't want to know how Led Zeppelin Four was made if I had the opportunity to have Jimmy Page produce a Black Veil Brides record, you know? Bob was so old school. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. not taking anything away from Bob. It was it, it, a lot of fun working with him, especially, I mean, he'd done such huge records that we're all huge fans of growing up. Yeah, working with Bob Rocky was very old school. We went to an empty rehearsal space room at Mates in, in North Hollywood, and he's like, all right, you guys, just jam. <laughs> and we're like jam <laughs> what do you yeah. mean we, we don't we don't jam <laughs> like we uh you know me and jake write stuff and you know like we 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 make songs and then and then we figure it out and yeah. you know so yeah. so he had his jam which is something we'd never done before and he's just like no I, this is it you know hear me out i'm just gonna put a mic in the room like a, a sm58 mic just whatever comes out we'll you know see what happens 
<laughs> and that was a fun experiment. Um, I'm not really sure <laughs> that anything good came out of that. But yeah, I think he was just kind of feeling us out. And he was just so old school that way. And then it, after a few days of that stuff going on, we were like, uh, can we bring in a computer? And me and Jake can see. And then he start, started seeing our MO and how we work. He's like, oh, I get it now. And you know, he was telling us stories about how James would go to Lars's house. And then they would write. And yeah. he's like, yeah, it's kind of a similar story. I would go to Jake's and we'd write. And it's like, oh, okay, I get it now. Long story short, he uh, you know did the, the whole record with us he, where it was old school, where it record all the parts, mix later, whereas we just did a record with Feldman where it was like record, mix as you go. As you go, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so it was very old school, and then it ended up where, because it was all brand new material with Bob, and it, I do have to say that he did pull stuff out of us. It was a very unique record in that sense that I think at first there was, there was a track on there where it's like he, I think he was trying to get us to write our version of Enter Sandman. And you can mm-hmm. kind, of, kind of hear it a little bit in, in, in the riff and all that, but it didn't really pan out to be, and, you know, it didn't end up being a big, this is our Enter Sandman. Oh, you know? right, right. Yeah, and we're, we're like, oh, let's just make our, our Black album and, you know, our version of it. And it was even self-titled and everything. But And we were like trying to match guitar tones, the Black album. You know, it's like, hey, sure. we can have the guy. Let's let's get yeah. the, the drum, you know, the, the uh, kick you know that he used uh, Lars's kick. Let's get James's yeah. guitar tones and Sabbath true. So we we're like abing and trying to get the best we can could. But yeah, then it got to the point where okay, he tracked all the vocals, took the band up to Vancouver, tracked all all of Andy's vocals, and then he's like, okay, well I'm I'm done here. And uh, Jake, you track all the guitars. So Jake ended up tracking guitars. You know his place, doing all of that. You know, and Bob came back, put all the ingredients together, and mixed at, at Henson Studio in Hollywood. And, but yeah, it was just a completely different process than working with Feldman. And then, you know, we went back and worked with Feldman again on Bale. And so, yeah, we, we, at the end of the day, we learned so much. And just the thing when you work with these producers, you just, you pick up things and, and uh, you learn and just like, wow, this is how, you know, this is how this record was made. And that this is how these guys work and learned a lot from Feldman, learned a lot from Bob, heard some really amazing stories from Bob. Here's Jake. A big breakthrough for me was when we did the Bob Rock record. Feldy has his team, he's got his engineers, his assistants, like it was around the clock production house. Like there's multiple projects being worked on and we would roll in there both with Wretched and Divine and Vale, you know, like before I would even get to Feldy's, I would have like a voice note on my iPhone and I would shoot it over to the the engineers and it would take me a half an hour to get out there. By the time I got there, they already started, like there's drums, there's like guitar riff down. They like, they took the voice note and like started creating it. I'm like, whoa, that's cool. Like. So there was a lot of help in that sense of just like getting things done quick, even though Wretched and Divine, that was a, a crazy process. But Vale, hap- I, musically and, and writing wise, it happened in like three weeks. Jinx and I were there 13, 14 hours a day. We wrote something like, I don't know, 20 songs in three weeks. And then there was just like a big pause. He ended up moving and getting the Blink-182 record and, and all this stuff happened where it just really kind of like, Okay, it felt like we kind of got put on the back burner a little bit. And obviously, like right away, it seemed like, cool, like this is a big priority. And then three weeks later, it was like, oh, just kind of felt like nobody cared about it, really. And it was kind of weird. And it ended up taking like a year and a half to finish the album. With the previous one with Bob Rock, it was interesting because it was a totally different experience. We did a week of pre-pro with him. The first day we showed up and it was like, okay, we're in, in a rehearsal room. And he's got this like little two-track recorder like i i don't know had like a stereo pair of microphone on it he just put up like two microphones in the room and he was like all right like who's got a riff and i was like okay we just kind of came up with something he was like kind of just like directing and like trying to like give ideas where to go with it and and it was super weird we've never done anything like that i've i've written songs in previous bands kind of like that like maybe one or two 
and they're never really like very good songs in my opinion like it doesn't i've never been somebody that's worked with bands like that i grew up in this era of, of digital recording you know i started with pro tools i was never on a tape machine or, or anything like that while the old guys might think and there's nothing can touch analog or whatever I'm like i'm I'm really grateful for the technology and how easy it is uh, now to record and you don't have to have a multi-million dollar studio to make something sound good. It was interesting working with a, you know, a legendary producer like Bob Rock. He made one of my all-time favorite albums, the Black Album. Like, I remember when I first started playing guitar, it was that album that made me go like, man, I want my guitar to sound like that. How do I get that? And I literally went to one of my guitar lessons and, and I asked my teacher, like, how do I get my guitar to sound like this? And he's like, oh, like, and he had this little like Korg, effects processor unit and he's like oh i can get you to sound like that and he put some like you know heavy high gain amp model on it or whatever and it sounded really cool i was like wow this thing's cool i need to be i need to get one of these and this was before i knew anything about how to get tone i, I had like a, a really crappy little fender practice amp and barely had any gain on it it just sounded terrible from such an early age i was interested in the tones and the sonic quality of things. And, and I was curious, like, how do you achieve that? So it was kind of a crazy moment come full circle and having Bob Rock playing us the stems from that, like the isolated guitar track and drums from Sad But True. And at one point he, he, he didn't understand how the Kemper worked. And he was like, let's profile the, he's like, I have the, the guitar stem, let's, let's copy the tone. And uh, while that, that is possible to do, we could have done that with uh, like an Axe Effects doing a, uh, an eq match or even doing it in pro tools but we tried to mess with the kemper and, and profile it but i was like i don't i don't think that's gonna work and we tried and it didn't work it was it was interesting teaching him something about you know because he was very like gibson les paul amp in a cab and mic it up and i think we spent three or four days just literally profiling and messing with guitar amps and tones we had three cabs in the studio each one had three microphones on it and we probably went through like at least 10 different heads we blended like three heads at a time and just tried every combination and profiled all these different amps. And while that's a lot of fun and that's cool, I mean, I can get better tones with the VST plugin nowadays. They're so good. And it's like, it's a waste of time. So I think being able to be quick and save your time, you know, time is money. So doing that record, it was the first time that I really kind of like had a list producer like this, give me a large amount of the responsibility, which basically it was going to be, we tracked drums for like the whole record was written. We made sure that was all done. And it wasn't, we've never really done that before. It's always been, you know, we'll have songs, but then we'll, we'll track as we go. And this was like, okay, we're tracking all the drums first. That was the first time we really did anything like that. We were at Steakhouse in North Hollywood. We tracked drums for like, I think CC got done in like six days. Then Bob was like, okay, well now Jake will go track guitars and, and bass and take care of that for the next month and a half. We went to Vancouver and did vocals and all the extra production bit and backup vocals and all that. Cause he wanted to get us out of LA and be able to just not have like the home life where you got to worry about taking out the trash and stuff and just okay you're here your whole your 100 focus is finishing this record and that's all you care about so we went there for three weeks but during that month and a half it was just kind of like okay he gave me like i got the hard drive and then i went home and i was like okay i gotta get to work i gotta track guitars and a lot of it like guitar wise wasn't fully written it was like okay we had like a chord progression right but it needed to be like worked out like it needed to be a riff it needed to be worked out so i spent a lot of time doing that just kind of evolving the music guitar wise where it should go and bob was like yeah okay you got to send me like every time you track a song send it to me i want to hear it i want to make sure everything sounds good i'm like okay yeah no problem so i did one song and sent it to him and he's like it sounds great i was like cool and then i never sent him anything again 
for the month and a half. Oh, and by the way, when I when I got the drive, I started tracking and I was like, this something just feels off. Like like something feels off. I was like, I, I felt like I wasn't playing in time right or something was off with the click a little bit here and there. And I was like, what is going on? So I had to go zoom in and check out the drums. And sure enough, nobody edited drums. And and when I say this, like I don't want people to get the wrong idea of thinking like, what editing drums was CC can't play drums? Like, no, 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 that's not what I'm talking about. Like CC's a beast of a drummer. But when you're making an album, you edit. Maybe there'll be fills here and there that you keep it unedited, depending on the feel of it. But for the most part, the beats, the main beats are going to be chopped up and aligned to the grid in Pro Tools. So everything is perfectly aligned, especially in metal music. If you don't do it, it things will be super sloppy real quick. And it was funny because Bob was like, you're not going to edit the guitars, right? And I was like, nah, no. I'm like, I think he wants me to say no. So I said no. And then, of course, I I edited them. I edited the guitars, too. I, I realized the first song that I was tracking, it, was, it wasn't edited. The drums weren't. I was like, okay. Like, Bob comped it. He put what he thought the drums should be, like, through the different takes. So when we would track drums, CeCe would play through the song, play through it, and do it so many times, and then do different fills and stuff. Bob would comp it together how he thought it should go. And that's that's where that ended. It never got edited any further from that. So I went in and I realized that the whole record was that way. I was like, oh my God, like I have to edit drums because there's nobody to do it. Of course I knew how to do it. So I just did it. And the funny thing is, so Faithless, I think is a fan favorite song. It's one of my favorite songs on that album. It was funny because the whole time we were, we were like in the demo stage of writing that song. Like that was a, a musical demo that I had. I had the music written to it. I had my demo. It had all the double kick in it. We played it. And for some reason, I think, Bob working with Metallica and Lars. Lars doesn't like the double kick aligning with guitars or something like that, right? And so we had this double kick in the song and he's like, you like all that double kick like that? It doesn't sound silly. I was like, I love I love that stuff, man. So we went and we, we worked with some people to kind of try to like rework the song a little bit and, and get some melodies on it. And of course, all the double kick got taken out. I was like, this is not good because I knew that it had to have that double kick in that intro and Blasco got it. He was like, yeah, it's like, you know, circle pit and stuff. I'm like, yes, like he, Blasco was on the same page with me. When we were tracking at Steakhouse, CC tracked the whole song and everything. I told him, I was like, CC, play double kick all through the intro just so we have it, just in case. And we ended up capturing that. And in the comp that Bob did, there was no double kick in it. So when I edited drums, I'm like, I'm putting double kick back in there. And I put it back in there. And I thought for sure when we went to Vancouver and, and everything was out and, and out there and he's listening to everything, I thought for sure that was going to catch his attention and be like, oh, you wait, what? What is this? Nope. He turns around and he's like, this sounds great. <laughs> so that was the moment when I knew that I was like, OK, I think I know what I'm doing. I felt like I had I had the approval from Bob Rock that I, I can do this. Jake and Jinx played with CeCe, a.k.a. Christian Coma, in a previous band and knew his combination of sizable charisma and devastating chops would make him a perfect fit for Black Veil Brides. In recent years, he sat in with Falling in Reverse for a music video in a U.S. tour, and performed as part of a one-off exclusive Andy Black lineup at the APMAs, which featured Mikey Way from My Chemical Romance on bass, Quinn Allman from The Used on guitar, and John Feldman, who also doubles as the frontman in Goldfinger. Here, CC explains how the often difficult recording process for Wretched and Divine was ultimately for the greater good. Without us working with John Feldman and creating Wretched and Divine, Story of the Wild Ones, there would be no The Phantom Tomorrow. And so without that experience, as difficult as that process was, I mean, it, I think 
more so for me than anybody else. You know, it was very hard. That was our first time that we went in into a studio with, you know, such a big name producer had to record the way you just mentioned with, you know, everything kind of being based off of lyrics and melody and programming drums and stuff and pulling back. And so, you know, I know that hindsight, as I mentioned, was always 2020. And so I know that in that period, I was like, I want to do like the sickest stuff on drums and just like do gnarly fills and blah, 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 double bass and crazy. And and it was very difficult for me at that time to, to pull back. And so, which in turn made me, I, I wouldn't say unhappy, but I, I just felt like creatively I was being constricted, you know, in the studio. And until I heard the record when it was finished, it was a very, you know, bitter pill for me to swallow. But, you know, when I saw the final product, I was kind of like, oh, okay, I I get it now. And, you know, these are great. These songs are great. Without that process and also, you know, working with Bob and having all these experiences with, with these very successful, influential producers, I don't think that this record would have turned out as good as it has. And, you know, that's not to take away any anything from Eric Ron's skill. I mean, that's just another experience that us as professional musicians have to recall in the studio and to, you know, play for whatever the song requires and whatever the fits, you know, the song best. I remember when I was learning drums, my drum instructor said you could do the craziest stuff but it has to lay well. And he goes, I mean, if it lays well, like it has to fit with the song. If this isn't a drum solo, like you have to know your role as a musician in the song. And I I think it's very clear those experiences have shown through. I was just listening last night to some of them and just, you know, thinking about how amazing and mature Jake's guitar solos have been. And I'm like, these are the sickest solos I've ever heard of him. Maybe, you know, some of them aren't the most technically advanced, but to me, being in the band, I'm like, oh, my God, it, it blends the perfect amount of musicality with technicality. And I'm like, these are just much more mature than, you know, some of the craziest solos where he might be like, oh, these are the dopest things. And I'm like, oh, my God, this, this solo is bananas. It's going to get you on cover of Guitar World. I mean, I think it just fits with the song as a whole better. And I think that my personal experience working with Feldman and being like, no, not that feel too crazy. Like, no, do it this way, do it this way, do it this way. And I'm like, oh my God. And the frustration that I went through years ago, having had that experience, it, it made it so much easier to create the Phantom tomorrow and work with Eric Ron. I think I was just much more mature from that, that experience. And it, it made me know when to hold back and know that, okay, this is like the harder metal song. I could do like some double bass and some crazier fills. And like this one, like I need to chill out and just kind of, you know, be be felt more than heard, so to speak, in the background, you know? And so, yeah, I think all of those experiences with those producers definitely shaped us as musicians, as well as like shaped the record, you know, kind of guided us in a certain direction. California native Eric Ron studied engineering at the Musicians Institute in Hollywood before embarking on a career that included a stint working under John Feldman. Eric's discography as a writer, producer, engineer, and mixer includes songs and records with Set It Off, I Prevail, Dance Gavin Dance, Godsmack, and now Black Veil Brides. Eric tells me he first heard of Black Veil Brides back in 2010, the same year he worked as engineer on one of Andy's favorite records, the self-titled Warner Brothers album from Foxy Shazam. Here's Eric talking about the first time he saw Black Veil play in the We Stitch These Wounds era at a small but legendary Orange County venue. I went to Chain Reaction, which was actually the first time I ever went to Chain Reaction, and I could not believe what I was witnessing. It was the first time I ever saw a row of parents all sitting together waiting for their children. I never saw anything like that in my life. And I was just blown away. And 
you know, I wasn't really into really heavy music, so I didn't really understand it musically as much, but I got it. I got instantly that this was a fandom. This was a cult. I immediately needed to understand it. And so I stayed and I watched the show and I watched these kids go crazy. And I knew that this band was not going away anytime soon. I was just taken back. I was blown away and just witnessing something that was just starting, really. I was at NAM, which is a music convention in Anaheim every year. And there was all this chit chat and chatter between like the thousands of people that are there. And there's this band walking through the halls, full painted up, full makeup. You can hear the jackets clanking, you know, all the th and their security guards that are just with them. And I'm like, what is this shit show? You know, like, it's like, what, what is this? And I just saw like, people were going fucking crazy. I'm a huge Manson fan. You know, Alice Cooper, Kiss, you know, like, I got what that was. And I went, okay, like, we're ready for a new version. Like, I see it. First person I really started to become friends with was CC in the summer of 2016. And I've heard about him from every band I worked with. You know, it was like, oh, my boy CC. Then I'm like, well, I keep hearing about this guy. And that was the first time I really got to hang with him and just experience like his warm kindness and light. And it's really one of a kind. And I just wanted to be friends with him. And, and you know, we always talked like, yo, if you ever need a student, you know, because I would ask him like, what's going on with Black Veil? And it was kind of at a time where I don't know if he knew the answer to that. I would ask him, I'm like, what's, you know, are you guys doing a record this? And, and he was like, I don't, I'm actually not sure. I'm just going to write it out, you know? So if you need any, any session work or anything, let me know. I'm like, okay. And it just never really came up. But we always maintained a friendship that went into like, you know, we became really closer in like maybe 2018 or so. And then 2019 rolled around. He's like, you know, I, I was in a meeting with Sumerian and your name came up. I kind of figured they were in really tight with their previous producer, John Feldman, who I actually worked for for a few years. I'm not much of a poacher. If someone has something, I don't really want to like break that up. And so in those situations, someone has to approach me and then I'll say yes, you know, like, and so he was like, are you even interested? I'm like, shut up. Of course I would. Let's, let's do it. You know? And that's kind of how it all started was, I think we were in, we were at Big Wang's in North Hollywood, and he said, you know, I'm supposed to be here, but I'm going to cancel it because I want to hang out with you, and we're going to call this a meeting. And then, like, ironically, it turned into a meeting. We had this meeting at the record label, and I remember Ash Abelton, the creator of Sumerian Records, he was like, you know who you guys would really do good working with is Eric Ron. Little did anyone know that Eric Ron's been has been my friend, pretty close friend for years. It, it was, uh, I don't know if I've ever explained this to Jinx, but it'll probably hear now. Uh, I was actually supposed, this is a funny story. This is the behind the scenes secret. Uh, I was supposed to go up to Jinx's house to write some music with him. And I remember that there was a football game on. I was in a group. It was like me, Eric Ron, my buddy, Tally Smith from The Word of Life, my buddy, Nick. And we were going to this place called Big Wangs. And they were like, hey, we're going for wings and to watch football. And I knew Eric was going. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to talk to Eric. And so I told, <laughs> I remember I told Jinx, I was like, hey, I got a meeting with Eric Ron. And like, I can't. And he was like, oh, no big deal, dude. And so what, what that meeting was, I mean, it was, it was a, I loosely call it a meeting. It was us, you know, having a couple of drinks, eating hot wings, watching football. And I was like slowly kind of like, you know, sat right next to Eric, like, Hey man, what would you, uh, what would you think about working with us? He was like, I'm down, dude, let's do it. And I was like, so, you know, and that was like the, the early stages of it. Like what's, what's your schedule looking like? Like when could we fit you in? And then I remember that I told Jinx, like I had a meeting to talk to him about it. 
you know, I always loved that dude as a friend and, you know, he's been writing bangers for so many of my friends and, you know, he's got such an amazing track record, you know, so many number one hits and, you know, he's Grammy nominated as, as a writer on some, I think I prevail song. And it, it's just, it was a no brainer to go with him. And I'm, I'm so happy and I feel so fortunate that everything worked out the way it did because I feel like he's brought so many different aspects out of Blackville Brides that were never drawn out of us before from a producer or, you know, us as musicians. Eric was, he and I had a shared experience of working with John for so long. We could connect on that level of, of a workflow that seemed familiar to both of us, both in vocal tracking and the way that the song's written. But Eric being his own unique talent unto himself and having the skill set that he has to be able to really pull out the best melody and the best idea and to complement whatever idea that the band comes in with in a way that is really going to build the song. To me, it just worked right away. And the first song that we wrote was Scarlet Cross. I came in with notebook pages of drawings and what the Scarlet Cross is and the detailed meanings of what it would be in the story and that kind of thing. And within you know two hours, there was, there was a song. Jake had a riff. Eric had an idea. I went out to my car and wrote the lyrics and then we were tracking it the same day so it's to me we're the kind of band that can work that quickly it just needs to be the right environment for us to be able to do so in a typical co-write session and that's what this was a, a co-write you know for anyone who doesn't know is essentially when a when an artist or a band comes in with a producer and a writer and they essentially start something from scratch or they start someone maybe had a riff idea or there's a demo that we listen to and go, how can we make this better? You know, there's all kinds of ways to do it, but typically there's five to 10 minutes of small talk and then you just dive in and see what happens. It really is like a, a go in blind and just see, because there's times where you think it's going to come out amazing and it doesn't or vice versa. And you never know what to expect, but I could just tell with this band, just seeing them in the room together. I mean, I think we, we had maybe like an eight or nine hour day and we talked for like six of them. And it was even the band talking to each other. And when that session was done and we had most of Scarlet Cross then, but a couple things blew me away. One was, you know, we developed the music, you know, in maybe like an hour or so, like we started getting it together and I presented a melody to Andy. I said, you know, what do you think about something like this? And he goes, I love it. He's like, can you lay it down? You know, which means like, can you go into the booth and record it? And I said, okay, you don't want to do it. He goes, no, I want you to do it. And, and Andy is such self-deprecating humor. He goes, no, I'll just mess it up and make it the worst thing you've ever heard. And you won't want to work with us or something. And so I, I would go in and he goes, all right, well, do the verse, do this. And I'm like, okay. So I, I just kind of do what I think the track needs. And then he's like, I love it. Just keep doing you. You know, and I said, okay, and what do you, lyrically, what do you want to write about? And he goes, well, I have a vision brewing, just mumble things, and I'm going to make lyrics out of it. And I kind of was like, okay, here we go, because I usually write a lot of lyrics as well as melodies. Typically in these situations, because it's all happening so fast, we all kind of go in on it together. But he goes, hey, when this is done, like, can you just send me a bounce, and I'll go to my car, and I'll work on something. And I went, oh, okay, like. I was a little bit like not expecting anything to happen with it. And sure enough, he goes into the car. Maybe an hour later, he comes back and he emails all of us the lyrics to a bunch of the melodies that I wrote. And they were amazing. And I was blown away. I said, as soon as he came in, I said, I got to be honest with you, Andy. 
I was not expecting you to come back with anything. And you came back with the entire song. And I don't have any notes. That was just something I wasn't expecting because I was still getting to know him and he was still getting to know me, but he, he really nailed it. And so I was really blown away. When that session was done, he texted me and he said, he said, you know, Eric, this is the most fun I've had in a session and I don't know how long. We all just like really felt safe and comfortable and we'd love to keep doing more. And if you're open to, I'd love to talk to you about doing an album. And, and it was like off the first day. And I went, and at the end of the day, I went to my engineer, Anthony, and I went, I love these guys. And he was like, I love these guys. He's like, I really hope we work together more. And like, so it all kind of just felt like that. And, and I could tell how much the band needed to be in the same room in a comfortable place and just talk because they were going through some pretty crazy stuff, you know, with member changes and just, I could just tell like they, they just kind of enjoyed having a face-to-face conversation because I think they were all living their own separate lives in the same city. We're all about being in-house, but then we're kind of entertaining the idea of like, well, maybe we can work out, work with some outside writers just to kind of, you know, just, just feel it out. Cause we want to write some big songs. We want to write some hits. We want to, you know, really get on the map with this record. This is then take it to the next level. But then CC suggested, oh, hey, my buddy, Eric Ron is available. Would you guys like to work with him? We all know who he is, you know, our circles that we, we keep and all that. And it was like, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, Eric's a great guy. I'd love to, you know, just see what happens. Let's just go, go to his place and, you know, do a song, demo it out and, and see how it goes. And if we feel, you know, he's great to work with, we'll do it again. So we went to his place in North Hollywood one day and we came out that first day uh, with Scarlet Cross. It started with just like, just kind of talking for a couple hours, just kind of feeling each other out, you know, reading the room and, and Andy's over here kind of noodling some ideas. That's just what he does. He has his notebooks and, and I love he's so old school like that. And uh, it was like, all right, well, do you guys have any riffs or, you know, and Jake's like, uh, yeah, I don't know. I got this. And, you know, it's kind of came with this dun, 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 just classic Jake riff, you know, and then it just started from there. And we just kind of kept passing the guitar back and forth. And then CC had ideas for, for drums and we just kind of went back and forth uh, around the room. And then Andy's like, he goes outside and does his thing, you know, his old thing would be like, oh, he'll go outside, smoke a cigarette and or whatever. You know, uh, we always say he goes outside and talks to aliens. So he comes <laughs> back in with this flood of ideas and lyrics. And uh, so he comes back in and he's like, OK, guys, hear me out. And he, he's like just rattling stuff off like he just got done reading Dante's Inferno or, you know, Dante's uh, Divine Comedy. And he had all these ideas. He's like, hey, you know, there's all these characters when uh, Dante's going down into hell and there's these. But um, basically, the concept of Scarlet Cross came and this anti-hero and, you know, how people were grounded with the Scarlet Cross and this layer of hell. And, and it was like, wow, this is a really cool idea. And it kind of goes with, like, you know, the, the mood that we're setting here, not only with the tone of the song, but then the intro thing we had leading into it. And it's, it's now starting to kind of come together. And then that's sparked well, the creative process. We did that one song, and I think we might have done one more with Eric after that. So we're like, wow, that was great. We really love what came out of that session. Let's do another we're just kind of like, okay, well, that's cool. Let's, uh, we got to get ready for tour. And <laughs> so it's February, 2020, you know, um, is, you know, what's going to happen next. Like Jason Newstead joining Metallica in 1986 or the more heightened and exaggerated story in the movie Rockstar. Blackville's newest member was a fan first. Already an accomplished live and studio musician who performed on the Juno Awards in his native Canada, Lonnie Eagleton made his live debut with Black Veil Brides at a triumphant show in Mexico. 
in what turned out to be the band's only performance before the 2020 shutdown. We played a show in Mexico City, which was kind of like the comeback show for the band. So we all flew to Mexico, and that was my first live show with the band, first show with the new lineup, first show Blackfield Brides had played in a while, actually. And it was awesome. We all had so much fun. It was definitely the most fun I've ever had performing. And the the other guys were saying too, it was definitely one of their you know top shows that they've ever done too, which which made me feel pretty good to that we could all gel in that way. You never know what's going to happen, right? You, you can see the chemistry in the studio. That doesn't always translate to a live show, but in this case, thankfully, it did. It felt like the best show we'd ever played. But we're watching the news. <laughs> And we're, we're on the flight coming back and, you know, everyone's like, you know, starting to wear masks and uh, we get home and it's just like, I think the next day where the president was on and saying like, oh, you know, this is what's going to happen. We're going into shutdown. Oh, no. And then we're just kind of like kind of seeing what's happening. We're kind of talking amongst ourselves and just, you know, the tour was supposed to start in like a couple of weeks after that. We're hearing about horror stories about our friends who are on tour in Europe and they're stuck and trying to get back. And, you know, it's just like a nightmare. The only thing we could really think to do at that point was like, okay, this is, it looks like it's, this is what's going to happen. Tour is going to get pushed back a couple months <laughs> or a month, you know, yeah. <laughs> at yeah. that point. And uh, let's yeah, just yeah, keep, yeah, this yeah. movie's not coming out in May. It's going to come out in August. This movie, yeah. okay, now it's coming out in September. <laughs> now, it's coming out, now it's 2022. Now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so we just kind of, I don't want to say I said shifted gears, but we just kind of like just kept doing what we were doing. We're like, okay, now that we it's sunk in that we're not going to be hitting the road just yet, just yet. All right, it's, it's postponed just a little bit. Let's just keep writing. So we did, and we just kept writing with Eric, kept churning out in our minds the hits, and just having fun doing it. And and, and the ideas were just flowing because not only were we just seeing what was happening in the news too, but it was just like the the, the spark was already you know the fire was already lit. And just you know, starting work with with Eric Ron, you know, like before, like me and Jake would just bounce ideas back and forth, and and you know, we always joke that we share a brain, which is true. I mean, the other day I was just saying, it's like, hey, have you started having anxiety dreams about tour yet? And and uh, it's like, yeah, I had one, uh, you know, two days ago, and he described exactly my dream that morning. So wow. you know, it's, just, wow. it's crazy. But um, yeah, so we've always said that, and but that's where it starts. We just kind of have an idea and bounce back and forth, like either Jake has a riff, or I'd have a you know, whatever, vice, you know, the chorus idea or vice versa. And so with Eric, he had all these fresh ideas that, you know, were actually different than our ideas, but it added some new element to us. So yeah, he would be very hands-on, a great top line writer. So, you know, whereas like we all have kind of ideas for a, a top line, you know, the vocal melody and Eric would, would go in the booth and just kind of, he's like, oh, I have this idea that would, you know, go over the top, you know, if you guys hate it, it's fine or whatever, but we always ended up loving it. So he has some great ideas, top lines. Sometimes too, if he, you know, it's like, let's get experimental with this. He would kind of like start a session where it's like, let's, let's do something, let's think outside of the box. We're always trying to think outside of the box, you know, trying to, let's get away from classic Blackfield breads a little bit and just, let's do something different. Let's uh, outdo ourselves that way. You know, how, how out there can we get with an idea and then still bring it in and make it a Blackville song. So he was really good about bringing outside elements in that, you know, things we never would have thought of. I think it takes a certain kind of person and a certain kind of band to be able to put a positive spin on a negative thing. The pandemic is terrible, but we're, we're like, you know, we still want to be able to work together. We got all this new excitement going on with the new lineup and the success from the night EP. We want to keep riding this wave and we want to continue to give back to the fans who have been so supportive for this, of this band for the past 10 years. We don't want to just shut down. So we're like, you know what, let's just write some songs. Let's just write some more songs. Let's 
it's everything's been so exciting i'm maybe a bit blurry on the details but at that time i think it was like let's just write some songs and we got together and we wrote scarlet cross that was the first thing that we wrote we just got together in a room and i think jake had the riff he just pulled that out and then cc put a beat behind it and we just kind of expanded from there and Andy started developing like this story in his mind and his characters. And then he wrote lyrics about it, and which eventually turned into what the Phantom Tomorrow story would be. But yeah, it all started with Scarlet Cross. We we loved that song so much when we wrote it. We're like, man, this is like one of the best Blackfoot Bride songs ever. <laughs> and we're like, we should just make a full album here because this is awesome. And the chemistry was so great with Eric uh, as a music producer, and you know, it it just it just kind of worked. I think we were all not sure what to expect. People in the band were probably a little apprehensive and nervous because like there was a new person coming in. You know, what's funny about Scarlet Cross is I wasn't even sure if we were going to get a song because I think it was the first time they were in the room together in a long time. And then I looked down because I didn't really know Andy. Like we met once or twice, but I couldn't say I know him. I couldn't say we were friends. And I looked down at his shoes and my eyes lit up and I said, oh, you've got off-white blazers on. And I think the band like was like, oh, here we go. And I think him and I talked for about two hours straight before we even started anything. And I think that would normally annoy bands, but I think that really made them stoked because... I was immediately bonding with Andy because we were both people that loved shoes and we both loved terrible Ohio football teams. And that's where our bond truly connected is that I'm a diehard Browns fan. My dad grew up in Canton, Ohio. So even though I grew up in San Francisco, who had the 49ers, who I should have been a fan of, he decided to make my life a lot more miserable and raised me as an all Cleveland sports fan. And so I have no, I have no say. I've always been taught loyalty. And so I've never switched up. I've never even thought about changing teams. And that's the curse I live with. And that really connected us to like this misery loves company, you know, it's like, and we bonded over how awful our teams are. And unfortunately for Andy, my team is now good, which is weird to say out loud, but we still have 20 something years plus of commiserating together it was already off to a really good start yeah i mean i think when you do a song that there's that intangible thing where you kind of go okay this is this is special and then the next day we wrote blackbird and then we wrote fields of bone and it just started to feel more and more like we had caught something that was gonna work and i think within three or four songs i sent you know and i'm not usually somebody who sends a bunch of demos to the label but we were on a new label and I was excited about what we were doing. So I sent, I put together a, because at this point I kind of really fleshed out the story, at least to the degree that I knew what the record was going to be. And I basically sent an EPK type thing I made and I photoshopped a bunch of pictures and stuff with descriptions of the characters, what it was going to be basically saying, we're no longer doing this duology thing. We're going to do a concept record. Here's what it is. And I sent uh, Scarlet Cross, Blackbird and Fields of Bone in there. It's earliest iteration. And sent the label and there was an immediate response to all of them. But Scarlet Cross in particular was one where, you know, I think Ash called it, you know, a, a slam dunk or something like that. There was just an immediate reaction to it. We definitely felt like there was something special happening. And then there's just little things like 
I'm someone I'm, I, I'm, a, I'm very much a creature of habit. I like to get into a rhythm. Eric's studio, not far from my house. His studio setup is very nice. The parking is easy. Uh, all these like little things that I go, oh, I want to come here every day. And apart from that, the energy was so great. And what we were making was so amazing that it felt like this is kind of the perfect situation. Like, let's just, let's buckle in and make a record here, you know? Originally it was going to be okay. You know, we'll do, we'll do it like we did restitch or the night or whatever. And guys were coming over here. We were writing, we started, start, it was just kind of like work together. We're like, what, okay, what's the concept? And he started developing story. He already kind of had like an idea of what he wanted to represent and everything. And I mean, it, it's been for, for as far back as I can remember, you know, the, the action figures and the comic book and all of that, that was, that's been talked about for years and years and years. And it's just never quite happened yet we you know we, we had a tried to do action figures but they just ended up being like statues kind of thing now it's like there's actual like action figures of the characters and in the phantom tomorrow being made and everything and it's it's pretty unreal to see so that was the original idea was okay we're gonna we're just gonna do it here we'll we'll do it like we we did the previous stuff as we dug deeper into this concept and how we're gonna do everything it got a little overwhelming with like how much work it's gonna be and with doing restitch not having an assistant or anything. It was pretty overwhelming. And for me, I was kind of like, holy, like, I'm not going to be able to do anything. I'm going to be sitting here 24 seven and it's going to burn me out. We had already done some co-writes with Eric and he really, he was really into it. Like we had already written Scarlet Cross and, and a couple other songs and he really wanted to work with us. So he basically came out and said like, hey man, like what, whatever I can do to be a part of this too, I want to be a part of this. We can use his studio. We can track drums there, whatever we feel comfortable with. Like I was cool with that because he's, that, that's two more people, him and his engineer that we'll have working with us. So that's a bigger team. That means we can get a lot more done. So that's, that's just kind of how, how that came. Eric really wanted to be a part of this. So, and, and we like working with him. He's a great guy. We had like the first couple songs that we wrote together. You know, CC brought his drums in, set them up and, and we tracked. And then uh, I tracked guitars here and, created the guitar tones that I thought would be cool for this album. And when I was done, I, I would edit the guitars like always before and basically send Eric mixed stems of the guitar tones and he would just drop them in. You know, he might have to, he put on EQ on there and just maybe do a couple tiny moves just to fit whatever his mix session is like. But yeah, it was basically just like drop the files in and it's done. They edited drums there. I didn't have to do it, thankfully. <laughs> I mean, it, it was just a really smooth process. It was very seamless because it, it it just felt reminiscent of Wretched and Divine in the sense where I'd be tracking guitars, Feldy would be tracking drums and vocals, Jinx would be working on violins at his place. And it, it kind of, we went back to, to that. And Eric used to be an engineer for John Feldman way back. So he was brought up under Feldy. So we, we've all had that experience of working with him. And I think we've all probably taken some uh, inspiration and whatnot from John Feldman. We, we worked a lot together too at Eric's studio. Like we would be there all the time. It wasn't like we were all separated. It was mostly together. It'd be like, okay, well, I won't come in tomorrow because I'm going to track guitars on this song. And Jinx would go, okay, I'll track violins on that song. So there'd be like a, a few days here and there where we'd split up and handle our tasks. And then we'd group back up and come back together. And it was a, a lot of writing, recording, mixing as we go. We would do like batches of three songs. So we would write until we felt like we had three to finish. We would finish those. Overall, it was just a really, really easy, smooth process making this album. Everybody was on the same page. This is probably the first time 
overall as a as a whole everybody knew their place everybody knew their job everybody nailed it everybody like outperformed and everybody sounds better than they ever have black veil brides phantom cast continues with a deeper look into the stories themes songwriting process of the phantom tomorrow and detailed tales from behind the scenes of the album's music videos and a lot more be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes of Black Veil Brides Phantom Cast. You guys have been great, and I've been Ryan J. Downing. Will we live? Will we die?